Hi, everyone. It's Michelle from Studio City Now. And today my guest is Stanley Livingston, I presume. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. And it's always a pleasure to see you at the museum. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I like the name of the show, Studio City Now. You know, I lived in Studio City most of my life. Born, raised in Hollywood, and then in 1963, my my parents bought a house in Studio City off of Whitsitt Moore Park, right next to the Studio City Park. We um, actually, actually, that's near the library. Mm -hmm. But we lived in Studio City. I grew up here, but we were mm -hmm. up towards Laurel and Maholland. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I eventually moved to moved to Laurel Canyon myself, <laughs> uh, and then in between, I had a house. Only about a block from my parents' house, which turned out to be perfect. We were actually looking to move, you know, some distance away to cut the cord from your parents uh, when I finally did buy a house. And it ended up, had the house we bought been on the opposite side of the street, uh, my house would have been back to back with my parents. That's how far we moved. But uh, I had a daughter by then, and fortunately, she could just walk out you know, our front gate, walk into the park, walk down the fence, and she was at grandma's house. So that was very convenient. Yeah, when we were in New York many years ago, <laughs> we lived right next door to my grandma on my dad's side. Uh-huh. And this was, I'm not going to say the year, but it was so safe in the Bronx. So me as a three-year-old would walk out of the house and go up to the stoop at her house Mm -hmm. And the door was always open. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like my parents' house, you know, well, they still had kids living at home. Uh, my sister was only, I think, two and a half years older than my daughter. So they were best friends. So they'd go over there and play. And like I said, we were literally, if you climbed over the side fence to my parents' house, we were in the park. We were literally adjacent to the park, so there was lots to do there. Jungle gyms, swings, uh, baseball, whatever you wanted to do. Oh, well, that's why my parents bought, bought that place. Barry and I, uh, 63, were in the middle of doing My Three Sons, and they realized, you know, when we came home, it could be four or five o'clock, and they wanted us to immediately have access to some place we could play and meet other kids, so hence uh, they bought that house. Wow. So let's start with My Three Sons. You know, I've never heard of that one. Yeah, I've never heard <laughs> of it either. I remember Tim Considine. And then he left, and then Ernie joined. And That's you why he joined. <laughs> That's why he joined. It was called My Three Sons, and the son was leaving, the oldest son. So it was either going to be down to my two sons and a friend, or adopt Ernie and make him the third son. And it worked out. Sure Which, did, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, all my friends, you know, we had crushes on Rob. Um, I don't know why I can't remember. Um the older one. Uh, oh, and Robbie. The, Robbie. Well, it was originally Mike, which was Tim Considine. Robbie was Don Grady. I was mm -hmm. the original youngest son. And then Tim left. I moved up. So did Don. Mm -hmm. And we got a new younger brother. And my real life brother, Barry Livingston, uh, became Ernie. But he was already on the, the show for a couple of years as a friend of mine, you know, neighborhood kid. Yeah, I remember. And, uh, yeah. When Tim left, they concocted a story. He was a... Uh, a foster child. His parents were leaving the country. They couldn't take him. And, uh, you know, we put out the word, hey, the show's called My Three Sons. We need another kid. And so we adopted Ernie. 
Well, we yeah. went from having the crush on er, on uh, Robbie to the crush on you, because Robbie mm -hmm. got married. Yeah. But you know, and you were like the perfect guy with the blonde hair and the everything else, or the light brown hair. But how did you? Um, well, let's start. What did you do before my three sons? Were you also a musketeer? I almost was a musketeer. One of my very early interviews after I got an agent, uh, besides being an extra, uh, was on the musketeers. I remember going to the audition. I had to sing a couple songs. And uh, I think they just felt I might have been a little bit too young. I, I would probably have been about six years old. And I think they were looking for somebody a little more in the seven to eight range. And they went with Cubby. Plus, with Cubby, they got a kid who could play drums, you know, like crazy when he was eight years old. So, uh, yeah, I did go out for that. Um, I went out. I was almost Dennis the Menace. Um, wow. I was out on the interview with Jay North. And I think the other kid was named Stanley Papara, if I remember right. And it was down to us. Jay got the part and we got the movie prize. We got to be extras on his show for a couple episodes. Um, and then I got an, an Aussie and Harriet. I was cast as an extra in that, just one of, you know, few neighborhood kids. And uh, in shooting this one particular episode, he gave me a line to say, a line of dialogue. We shot it. Then we, uh, he moved the camera closer. We shot it again. So I got a close up. And at the uh, end of the day, he came up to my mom and said, I want to have Stanley back. Be sure to leave your contact information with my secretary in the front office. And sure enough, about a month later, I did another Oz and Harriet, and another. And over a two year period, I probably did 12 to 15 episodes of Oz and Harriet. Meanwhile, my, because of that, I started working even more. My agent, got me a movie, uh, went out and interviewed for the Bonnie Parker story with Dorothy Provine. And I, it's funny, I watched a little bit of that last night. I, I don't know why it popped up on my YouTube feed. So I looked through it, got to my scene and watched it. it it's a pretty good, cool scene. And then there was another actor in there. Who the heck is this guy? There, there was a Boy Scout troop with the Boy Scout master. And the guy's voice was very familiar to me, but I just couldn't place it. So I had to watch the credits, fast forward to the credits. It was Sidney Lassick. From Cuckoo's Nest, Cheswick. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how about that? I was I was completely blown away by that. Um, but uh, yeah, so all that happened, and then I ended up getting uh, hired by Jackie Cooper to do a TV pilot called Skippy, which he wrote for me, and that was at the end of 1958, and I I was the star of Skippy, and uh, it turned out it was a TV pilot that didn't sell, but. The reel of me on film, you know, was shopped around to producers and directors for potential parts. And uh, I was under contract to Jackie Cooper. And there was two parts that came up because of uh, my agent borrowing the reel from Jackie Cooper. She would run a theater, pay the projectionist. And this has all happened after midnight. And producers or casting people, whoever you want to see, had a, you know, we didn't have reels then, a videotape or DVD. So you actually had to go to a movie theater with a reel of 16 millimeter film and load it up, pay the projectionist to stay there for a half hour, whatever it took to show it. And that that's how you, that's why when they say, do you have a reel? That's actually what they're talking about. Not do you have a videotape or do you have a DVD in the old days? The term came because they would look at your reel. A couple of people saw my reel. One of them was the producers who were concocting this new TV show called My Three Sons. And they were, shown the reel and wanted me to sign literally almost the next day. The problem was a movie company was after me to do a movie. 
and uh, there was going to be a version of not Tom Sawyer, but Huckleberry Finn, which was made in 1960. This was probably 59 when they were casting it. It was originally going to be a musical, and then they decided it wasn't going to be a musical, and I think that's why they wanted me. They saw this reel, thought I might have been just a little younger than they wanted, but they were willing to do it. And uh, my parents didn't know what to do. And we left it completely up to my agent. My agent wanted me to take my three sons. You know, not that there was any self-interest there, but, you know, if you do a movie, she gets one paycheck, one commission, where if a series goes, you're getting a weekly paycheck for 39 episodes. And, you know, she figured at least that's 39 weeks. And who knows if it'll go a second year or third year. But in the case of my three sons, it went for 12 years and uh, 380 episodes she collected checks on. So she made the right call. And uh, yeah, that's how then the one little last thing that had to be done was to get myself out of that contract with Jackie Cooper, who had just finished a TV series called The People's Choice and was thinking about doing another TV series. And he opted to go that direction and he knew he wasn't going to do anything with Skippy, so he let me out of the pilot. But Jackie and I remained uh, friends my whole life and his whole life. And uh, yeah, he was sort of a champion for my early career. Had I not done Skippy, I wouldn't have got all those other roles. And yeah, it's, it's still a great piece of film. I finally saw it. I never saw it back then because it was past my bedtime when they showed it, midnight in the theater. And uh, it took about 68 years for me to run into somebody that had a copy of it. I finally got to see it. Yeah. Not on YouTube? It was okay. Uh, no, it's not. I'm probably the only human being besides the guy that gave it to me that have a copy of it. And um, yeah, it has never went into, well, it could probably be in the public domain by now. I don't know what the story is behind it, but I I probably have the only good copy uh, and, and this guy, Jay. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was an interesting idea, but I, I could see, you know, being a producer, why I wouldn't have, you know, I don't think it would have been that great idea for a series. It wasn't uh, Dennis the Menace, although it had a lot of the stylistic things of that, but what it didn't have is Mr. Wilson. There wasn't a real clear protagonist or antagonist in it. You know, you had the main character, Dennis, but, you know, you got to have some character foil for him. And there wasn't that in Skippy, which that should have been introduced right away. You know, about the best thing I can say for it, man, it just showed me in a great way. You know, I'm on screen 90% of the time. I probably had half or more of the dialogue. And I was a pimp when I was a little kid. So anybody could remember that many lines should have got a medal. Anyway, it did get me other parts and movies. And man, God bless Jackie Cooper. It opened doors for you. It did. It was a door opener. That's what it was, which is what show business is all about. Every time you meet somebody or do a job, you just open another door and god knows what's on the other side yeah and think if you had done dennis the menace your life would have been so different it would have been you know i'm not sure it would have been so different than jay jay had a you know supposedly a pretty rough wife uh you know i think his mom didn't come to the set and take care of him she farmed him out to an aunt and uncle who according to him abused him and uh, were pretty mean and beat him and all the things he was talking about. I don't know if that happened or not, but you know, if it did, it, I could see how that would definitely, uh, you would lose your taste for being an actor. But that being said, Jay was an actor, you know, uh, for at least five, six years on Dennis the Menace, which probably brought him to being about 12, 13. And he continued to act. 
you know, till he was in his early 20s. In fact, he got a role for me one time. I got hired to do a movie and then a couple, well, a couple, I was hired. I hadn't signed yet. And uh, another movie came to me and I wanted to do the other movie. I just thought it was a better part. There was an actor named Lou Jacoby in it who was a kind of famous character actor and I wanted to work with him. I just thought he was funny. And um, so I called the people back and said, hey, look, I'm sorry. I want to do your film, but this other part came up. And, you know, is there any way I could weasel out of this? And I said, I'm not going to leave you high and dry. What if I got you another actor that's sort of like me, meaning somebody who just come off a TV series and was probably as well known, if not more well known than me, I, I think. But uh, so they said, great, who? And I said, Jay North. I said, he's a close friend of mine. And, uh, you know, if you guys think you'd be interested in him to replace me as the actor in your film, I'll give him a buzz. And they said, yeah. And I called Jay and said, it's all yours, pal. So he did a movie called Teacher's Pet. I remember Angel that Tom movie. It was with Angel Tompkins. That was my reason I wanted to do that movie. I thought, wow, that would be cool. So anyway, you said um, you worked with Angel Tompkins. Or you didn't I work with Angel Tompkins. I wanted to work with Angel Tompkins. That was yeah part of the reason I wanted to do the film because I think they had already cast it. And uh, yeah, that'd be good. And, and it was kind of more of a mature role for me. You know, it was about a, a kid in high school has a sexual encounter with his high school teacher. So <laughs> it was about as far away from Chip Douglas as you could get. You know? uh, yeah. And that's, that's what I was trying to do was find roles that would show me in another light. Anyway, the movie got made. I... I didn't see it. I've never seen it, but you know, I, I guess it was probably okay. And I can't really complain because a couple of years later, I think, yeah, it might have been around the same time. I did a movie called Private Parts for Paul Marteau, which was this seedy kind of dark, almost an Alfred Hitchcock kind of movie, almost like Frenzy. You know, it was just really weird, but it was a good movie. Yeah, I mean, don't don't let the title fool you. He got yeah. rave reviews. I got a rave review by Judith Christ and a lot of other people. They became a uh, cult favorite, and TCM shows it all the time because it, it was actually made and distributed by MGM, who had the film. So when Ted Turner bought the MGM library, he took possession of it and went, what's this? So they started putting it back into the theater. Yeah, it got a pretty good following. I'm going to have to, um, I bet it's on YouTube or I could rent it for like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, somewhere online, I guess somebody sent me a copy or I found it at uh, Amoeba and bought a copy, but I, somebody told me they run it on Fridays after midnight occasionally on TCM. So that's the place to see it. Cool. Yeah. I was going to ask, what have you done since? And so you did these roles and you're now producing or directing yeah, I mean, well, even on My Three Sons, at the end of My Three Sons, when I was 18 years old, I formed a production company. And how I did that was when I was 16, 17 years old and 18 years old, I had paid attention to what was going on on the set. And, you know, not just my acting chores, but I was interested in how the cameras worked and the different types of cameras and the lenses and the film stocks and the laboratory procedures and then editing. I would go up to the editing room and they'd be putting film together with, in those days with movieola. So you would actually physically cut the film, tape it together, run it through a movieola, cut the sound, and then scheduling. Learn how to do all the scheduling, uh, make up production boards. So I, I learned everything that I thought I would need to know and 
And then after that, you're just applying your good taste and luck that if you can get things to film. So I had a partner, you know, we shot commercials, educational films, corporate stuff. And, you know, we um, cut our teeth on that and went forward from there and, you know, did a couple TV shows, TV pilots, uh, movie, another movie that was uh, actually a Cinerama film in 2012, shot in Cinerama. Yeah. Well, what I have found, I was in unnamed cell phone store mm-hmm. i got this particular cell phone yeah and the guy tried to tell me you know because you've seen me work and you've seen the equipment i carry around mm-hmm. oh yeah everything you can do you can do on your cell phone on your blip 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 11 and yeah maybe a 13 would be better but 11's okay and he tried to tell me i could get rid of all my equipment and i'm like really so I could go to Cannes filming a film on this. Mm-hmm. He got up and walked away. Mm-hmm. And I find every more I'm in town, sorry guys, thinks they're a filmmaker because they have a blank phone 11 or a blank phone 12. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of bringing this industry down too, because you can't- Well, it's, it's not quite like a regular camera. I mean, you can do it, you know, mm-hmm. but- there, when you're shooting with a movie camera, you know, even if you have one of the, say, not an, an area or Alexa, which is probably a $60,000, $70,000 camera or a red camera, yeah, you're capturing real high end 4K, 5K now, 6K. But at the end, uh, the other end of the area, the Alexa, you could have a $60,000, $70,000 lens. You're not going to have that on an iPhone, you know? Or, no. Any kind of- you know, so that that's the that's the big difference. The other big difference, and that would pertain to whether you have an Alexa or a, a red camera. You know, what I think determines the difference between professional people shooting and non is the microphone and having sound. You know, I would only use the sound that I captured on my iPhone as as what they call a scratch track. So I've got a reference. And then I would want that sound recorded on a really decent sound device recording. You know, where you're, yeah. you're recording with a good mic or a good, you know, lavalier mic or a boom mic or, or, or a wireless mic. Uh, and that's going to a separate system. And then you bring that in and you stink it up and get rid of the sound that you recorded on your inky dinky little, you know, phone. Because uh, then you have a real quality, meaning it has, you know, real fidelity, bandwidth is there. There's all kinds of differences. Um, you know, for some of the phones, you can actually put different lenses on them. So that kind of makes up for the crappy lens. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, in a pinch, you can do it. It just depends. I wouldn't advise making a movie on an iPhone, but you can do it if you're careful. And then it all becomes about the lighting, not so much the, the lens. Right. And the editing. And the editing. Well, this will make you laugh. When I was first setting up a studio, because it's so hot, I just brought what I needed out here in the den. I needed a mic and my daughter who, um, you know, was going through her stuff. She said, so mom, I have a mic. You can have it. And I said, great. So she brought it over and we started peeling back everything. It was a Mr. Mike. <laughs> like, okay. yeah, or people that are shooting with a microphone, uh, like Radio Shack's best mic, you know, or something like that. No, well, that's the thing. You know what? That's the thing when people try to shoot, especially films or even, you know, lesser stuff dead giveaway 
that it's you know an amateur doing it is the sound because you could you could have a red camera shoot it and you get the best picture you know and a, and a lot of latitude because you can bring things back if you shot raw same thing with an alexa but the problem is the sound you can't bring back there's no way to fix it if you're shooting with a tinny cheap 200 microphone there's not not much you can do with it i mean you know my mic of choice is is a sheps s-h-e-o-p-s but the microphone's like two thousand dollars twenty five hundred dollars and yeah. it comes with a series of caps on there so you can change uh, the degree that you're seeing, either cardioid, hypercardioid, uh, you know, the degree from which the sound can come in from the side. Or you can buy a different Shep's mic, which is like a uh, shotgun mic. So it's got a very narrow beam. But it, when you listen put pair of headphones on and listen to what you're getting through one of those microphones as opposed to an inferior microphone, I mean, you're, you're blown away. You're completely blown away. Oh, I know. The first movie I did, um, it was all top of the line equipment. And I had, it was filmed inside someone's house. I had walked across the house to mm -hmm. use the facilities and they didn't turn anything off. And I'm like, fine. You could hear, a, I ran water. They could hear the water. This yeah. might picked up everything. Yeah, well, you can pick up the refrigerator hum or the AC hum and then you bake it into the soundtrack. That's why you get that turned on. Oh yeah. 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 Because there's no way to filter that stuff out that you can't, I mean, you can try, but it's going to alter your original track too. Or, you know, it's as good as your sound man. If you've got a sound guy, you know, the boom's hanging down. I've seen sound guys. I'm talking and he's got the mic kind of like this and I have to walk over and go like that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, let me talk while you have the mic over there. Put your headphones on and let me talk and you hear it. Okay, now I'm going to move it where it should be. You go, oh yeah that's a big difference you know it's like yeah that's where the mic is supposed to be pointed this is my mouth the mic is pointed at me and my mouth not over there hey but you, that's one of the things as a producer you i think you need to know is everybody's job so that you've done it so that you can look around and somebody has the mic off axis that you can walk over there and discreetly tell them to you know, pay attention and get the mic where it needs to be or, you know, or the other part problem is with camera guys that you're hired, looking at the framing and, you know, the person in the frame is like this. And okay. I'm like, well, what's that all about? <laughs> okay, let me just give a visual or a, because, you know, we only use the audio on this. Um, Stan had moved his face or his head all the way over to, right. I think it's the left or the right. Side, yes. All the way to the side. And... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so that's what that's what you get. It's framed wrong. It's the, the proportions aren't right. And then, you know, I always have to take those camera guys where it's, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to know composition. You're not mm -hmm. composing the shot right according to where the head is. And if I'm like slightly profile, you need to leave more room on this side than the, the side that has the back of my head. I go, if you want to know how to do this, go to a museum and go look at paintings, especially old master paintings. You will learn a lot about lighting and you will learn a lot about composition. If there's one person in there, where they are, which way they're looking. If there's two people, see how they have them positioned in the frame. Uh, if there's multiple people, take a look at it. And then mainly look at the lighting, where the light source is coming from. That's the sort of stuff you have to, to know. I mean, it's funny. I watch CBS News every morning. Some somebody must be asleep. I'll show you. But this is what I see some morning. Ready? Mm -hmm. 
I see that. I see okay. like an eye. Okay, <laughs> now Stan had, because, you know, it's audio. Stan had ducked down and all you could see is his eyes in the top of his head. My eyes, yeah. I've seen that. Or, um, CBS. I know what they're doing. There's a thing where you do that and you check to focus and they forget to push the button to bring it out to full frame, but it you know cracks me up that they leave it on the focus position. I but so, then yeah, it's so yeah. funny to watch a show where I only see somebody's eye and like the top of the head or maybe an ear coming in frame. Every morning I'm like laughing. Well, um, so did you go to a cinematic or a, a film school or yeah? Yeah, of course. Uh, I went to UCLA. I went to LACC before that. And, you know, because I wasn't sure, but it's when I decided I was going to go into producing and directing. I thought, man, you know, besides, I already knew a lot from just being around these old timers who taught me everything. But, you know, I, I still wanted to go through the courses. So, yeah, film laboratory courses. In those days, we shot on film, uh, camera classes, you know, all editing classes, even there. Yes, you learn how to do it. And I wanted this the school credit. Yeah, acting too. I went to the Actors and Directors Lab in uh, in Beverly Hills. Uh, my acting instructor was a guy named Jack Garfine, who was part of the Actors Studio, but came out here. His wife was Carol Baker. <gasps> oh, the actress. Yeah, she was Jean Harlow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, they had a kid together, Blanche Baker. So uh, I was in his acting and directing classes. Yeah. Keep going and, you know, it's amazing what you learn. I'm still learning. I've been doing this 65, 66 years and there's still stuff you you can learn if you're open to learning. And sometimes it's not from more experienced people, but younger people are just trying something new. You go, wow, that worked. Whatever you did, that's a neat idea. So, yeah, one of the things that really impressed me, I was watching one of the award shows Mm -hmm. and John Voigt had won something. So I'm going back a couple of years. And he said, I have to make this an early night because I've seen study tomorrow. And oh, yeah. Like, well, wow. that, that's like that program I did. I, I did a uh, program for actors called The Actor's Journey. And uh, some clips up on YouTube. We're rebuilding the website right now offline, but it will finally be up. But what The Actor's Journey is about is the business side of being an actor. Not the acting side. You can learn that anywhere, but learning the business side. And one of the business sides, even though it has to do with craft, is, you know, actors think, well, I went to school and now I don't have to do anything anymore. And, you know, it's like, no, you're still supposed to be in a class every because you can get really rusty really quick being an actor if you're not up on your feet performing, whether it's on a stage or whether you're trying to shoot something yourself. And I think a lot of people are surprised when they go to the more senior classes that there's a lot of big actors in there, like Al Pacino still goes, John Boyd still goes, mm -hmm. because that's part of your life. But you 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 have to keep yourself well oiled. And I you know I think people new to the industry think it's this thing you do in the beginning, then you don't do the classes anymore, and you don't you you, you go every week. And you learn stuff and you try stuff. It's your place to experiment and try new things without making an, an ass of yourself on film. You can go there and make an ass of yourself. And you're expected to, to you know, push the envelope, taking, you know, with different kind of characters or parts or whatever you want to do. That's very important. Now, here's a question, um, and I'll start wrapping up. Like I was on set, this was like a year ago, 
and dealt with the extra from hell. <laughs> yeah. I'll call you later and tell you about it. <laughs> but um, have you ever had to deal no. with, no? You've never had to deal oh, with? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have sort of a commiseration with actors. I don't, you know, I think a lot of them do that. And it, that's another thing that we teach in the actor's journey is go get a job as an act, extra because you can learn a lot about production if you have no experience. If you're observant, you know, if all you're doing is hanging out at the catering table or playing cards when you're not working, then you're not learning anything. You're expected to be there and watching the director and watching the actors so you see how all this is done. And if you have any aspirations for actors, you know, you kind of let that be known. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen an extra plucked out of obscurity that day because somebody didn't show up and go, can you do this line? You know, our actor didn't show up. And some guy gets bumped to being an actor, gets in the screen, actors don't tell them. But there are also ones that are, you know, they just show up and, yeah, they, they not that they cause chaos, but... Uh, they, they can cause chaos with the other people working there and it makes it yeah. you know, rough for the people who are trying to do their job and do the right thing or they're just there because they're starving and waiting for lunchtime for the catering truck to arrive or the catering uh, you know the food to be served kind of thing but yeah back I, I, was, I wanted to write a movie about extras ones I mean it's just such a weird thing to aspire to you know to go well you know I'm just doing this because I want to be an extra because it's almost like diminishing who you are, that you have no further aspirations than that. And the psychology that has to be in your head to kind of resign yourself to that. And I've known people that did that their whole life. And they're always kind of, you know, a little bit strange people. And that's how they made their money. And, uh, you know, more power to them. But, you know, I think people come there thinking it will be a springboard for something else. And, you know, it can be, but, you know, you've really got to be discreet about you know letting your intentions known why you're there but at the same time looking for what i call opportunities you know where you you hear something you go hey some actor's not showing up and you speak up and you know say hey i could handle that if you need me to i've seen even crew guys picked you know for a part where somebody didn't show up you know and they're waiting and waiting and finally you gotta go you got you know you turn to the grip and go you look kind of like the guy we hired you think you could say these three lines and you know you work with the guy and he says them and suddenly he can get in the screen actors guild, not the not the actor. So that's how so I got go in. Go figure. Yeah, this in business is insane. Well, that's how I got in. I was hired with no lines. Uh, I was just supposed to walk out of some Christmas trees past Ozzie Nelson. I had no lines and I had a backpack on and a sleeping bag, so it was bigger than me. And for whatever reason, he looked at me and said, you know, could you say this line? And so he said, let me, let me hear you say it. So I said it. So he put an X on the ground. He says, I want you to walk and just pause for a second here. Look me right in the eyes and say that line and then turn and go. So we rehearsed it once and I guess I did it. Okay. They rolled, we shot it, printed it. And then I think he decided, hmm, I'll move the camera and get a close up of this kid. So he did. I did the exact same thing again. And that's how I got in. Well, you were just so adorable as a kid. You're still yeah, adorable. I, 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 I was I was adorable on 20 other things before that, but that opportunity didn't happen. You know, that was just dumb luck. It wasn't me fishing for it. But, uh, you know, anybody, it's, you know, worth their salt is sort of open to that. 
And, but I did, you know, does probably at least a dozen, if not more things where I had no lines and nobody gave me a line and nobody cared to give me a line. I was just being used. I had another one when I, I one of my first things was uh, I was actually a, a stunt person for a kid. It was on Lassie. And the Lassie episode where the older guy, Tommy Reddick, who played Jeff, is leaving and Timmy's coming on with John Provost. Uh, anyway, Timmy runs away and falls off a bridge into like a, a lake, and they have a shot of him out there, uh, you know, flailing around and drowning. Well, that was me. That wasn't John. And then some guy runs out to the lake and snatches me up so I don't drown. They're trying to hold me so you couldn't see my face because that was Stan, not John. But yeah, you know, it's the kind of roles you get in the beginning, and you know, uh, you do. get you out there. Yeah, yeah. All I had to know how to do was swim and, and have my clothes on. I needed to have to wear a bathing suit. I love it. And you know what? We could go on forever, but I know you have things to do. And I'd love to do a part two um, whenever. Yeah. Great. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Great. Fine. So thank you so, well, so much. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate it. And it's been nice to be on your show. Yeah. I said, yeah, I'm sure I will see you around uh, at events. the museum, uh, yeah. Yeah, at the museum. Yeah, I go there fairly regularly. Actually, my brother was there, I think, on Wednesday. Uh, they did a, a Lucy event, apparently. And oh, uh, our, yeah. the publicist that we have sent uh, a reminder to me to be at the Lucy event. And I was like, what? Are you? I mean, I could do it. I, I knew Lucy and pretty well because we go in and out of her you know stage door we had a uh, we shared a stage door actually she would come out one door and we'd come out the other and there was kind of like a little entryway and then you go out the, the single door there uh, and i'd run into her there all the time or outside with her big lincoln continental that she gave me a, a ride one time around the studio lot she had just got in the car and uh, bill frawley and i used to go over on to her set and uh, we'd bring a whole bunch of film reel cans and let them loose, especially when uh, Vivian Vance would speak. And you'd hear these cans spinning around and sound like cymbals going off. We pull all kinds of pranks on them. So, but Barry actually did a, a Lucy episode. Uh, he did the Lucy show, which was filming right next door to us. And uh, Vivian, I mean, Lucy, uh, I think he was supposed to be Mr. Mooney's son or grandson and Lucy Mohawkson gets a mohawk from Lucy. <laughs> so it was a pretty funny episode. Anyway, I guess they probably wanted Barry there to tell that story. It's kind of like the little rascal stories I told when I uh, I was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll have to talk about that too. So thank you so much. Yes, and all right, well, thank you again and we'll uh, touch base or see you there and we'll do part two. You got it, you have a wonderful day. Thanks again. You too. Okay. Thanks Bye -bye. so much. Okay, bye now.